When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Ruman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. In Raul Palma's debut novel, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens, Hugo Carrera has lost his wife to illness and gotten in return an impossible medical debt that can never be repaid because of its soaring interest rates. When his arch-nemesis, the debt collector, Alexei Ramirez, calls him out of the blue, it's for spiritual rather than capital reasons. Alexei senses that his property in Hylea Gardens, overdone in ostentatious wealth, is suffused with an ill spirit, a ghost of his first debt collection, and he is turning to Hugo for a different set of skills. Hugo works at a botanica in a strip mall for a spiritual medium named Lourdes. He is a babalao, capable, supposedly, of clearing bad spirits. When a contract is made promising the clearing of his debts in return for a clean bill of spiritual health at Alexei's house, Hugo sets about on what he thinks is a purely imagined exorcism. What he finds is a haunting of his own that pulls together the death of his wife, his unsettled connection to the Latin community in Miami, and a longer history of his childhood in Bolivia working in the silver mines. A devil that bears the signs of colonial occupation, capitalist racism, and immigrant struggle has been raised and is up to Hugo to clear a different kind of debt. Told in alternately hilarious and frightening prose, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens is a masterwork of suspense, genre play, and a novel that belongs to the rich history of literature that opens up Miami's immigrant story to allow new voices, new faces, and new ideas to come storming in. A truly impressive debut. Raul Palma is a second-generation Cuban-American born and raised in Miami. His short story collection, In This World of Ultraviolet Light, won the 2021 Don Belton Prize. His writing has appeared in Alaska Quarterly Review, The Greensboro Review, Hayden Ferry Review, and elsewhere. He teaches fiction at Ithaca College, where he is the Associate Dean of the Faculty in the School of Humanities and Sciences. He has also taught at the Elmira Correctional Facility through Cornell University's Prison Education Program. He lives with his wife and daughter in Ithaca, New York. Welcome to Burned by Books, Raul. Hey, thank you. And thanks for that introduction. Uh, well, this is a really magnificent novel, and it is, it's both fun and heady. 
And a lot of your previous short fiction work takes place in Miami and more and works often specifically with Cuban diaspora communities there. But how did you end up wanting to write a novel about exorcisms in a very particular community just on the edge of Miami? Uh, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's actually um, every every year around the holidays, I uh, I sit down with uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol and read through it. You know, and it's kind of become a tradition for me, right? Um, and very early on, when I started working on this project, um, because I was in such close proximity to debt, I began to draw these really interesting connections with Dickens, the the Carol, and and I think uh, the the I guess the bend toward Gothic probably began there, right? Um, but it really began to accelerate for me. Um, when I began to uh, start thinking or imagining these larger uh, associations between Latin America's colonial past and then uh, this kind of uh, surface level Miami uh, in which everybody's just kind of going to work, you know, making a living uh, or living in big mansions. And, I, and what I wanted to do was try to figure out a way that I could kind of pierce that everyday, uh, you know, uh, from point A to point B life uh, for the characters in the novel. And it seemed that um, the possibility of a kind of exorcism or haunting would be a good vehicle for that. So, so it began with that kind of playful uh, nature, and then I just kind of leaned into it. Uh, and Hialeah Gardens is, I think it's technically a city, but I think it's really thought of as part of Metro Miami. What makes Hialeah unique, and especially in its relationship to a, a Cuban diaspora there, and, and and why was it important to set uh, an exorcism there? Yeah, um, so absolutely, right? Hialeah proper um, is kind of maybe what most folks would think about when they're thinking about the Cuban diaspora. Um, you know, kind of in, in central north uh, Miami, one of 27 municipalities that make up Miami proper. Oh, I didn't realize there was that many. Right. It, it's, it's kind of amazing, right? The, uh, that when we reference Miami, um, we're also referencing uh, all of these little small, tiny cities. Uh, Hialeah is one of the larger ones. And then Hialeah Gardens is just outside of it in this really unique geographical position. It's kind of in between Hialeah uh, a city called Medley, which is kind of an industrial uh, city um, where there, there are landfills, dust, uh, kind of, uh, what is it, cement manufacturers, uh, casting, that kind of thing. And then just north of it, uh, a city called Miami Lakes, uh, which kind of borders uh, Broward County and Miramar and, and those uh, areas. So it's kind of it's kind of uh, right off this main highway, uh, but kind of nestled between these communities. And the kind of place that um, you know, especially if you're visiting Miami as a tourist, you wouldn't necessarily uh, you know end up in right. It's kind of north and really west uh, when it comes to Miami. So setting the novel there, um, you know, what what caught my attention was this idea that even out there close to the Everglades, right, between uh, this industrial community in a small track of land along a canal and along a highway, that even out there, there are these multi-million dollar homes that are being constructed. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how unusual, right, that a city like Miami just continues to spread out um, and, that, uh, and that just as a natural 
um, kind of response to uh, the pressures and, uh, with the cost of property and real estate and and traffic and things like that, that places like Hialeah Gardens would then flourish, right? So far from the major attractions that most people think about when they're thinking of Miami. So I was kind of fascinated by that, you know, a place that uh, so many possibilities um, in terms of the folks who live there and the kind of intersections with the industries, um, but a place that really isn't on most people's radar. It lives in this peripheral sense of Miami that's not the sort of pop culture understanding of of Miami for people who don't live there, but it's, uh, you know, you, you give it life in the novel and make it such a central part of that, that metro understanding of the city. I want to I want to talk about hauntings in the novel. You read uh, a Dickens' A Christmas Carol every year, and and my family listens to the 1935 Lionel Barrymore radio uh, program <laughs> of it, which is pretty amazing. If you if you haven't listened to it, it is since you you love the story, you will love the the radio production of it. It's amazing. I have to check that out. And it's sponsored by Campbell's Soup. And so there are there are commercials, you know, 1935 style commercials that tell ho- housewives that some of their burden can be lifted now that they have Campbell soups in their in their home. Yeah. So check it out. But, um, you know, there are many kind of hauntings in this novel. There's the sort of more direct haunting of Alexi and, and his family. And. But there's a, a haunting longing that Hugo has for Melly, his deceased wife. And, and then there's this historical haunting of both his childhood, but a much longer haunting of colonialism and Spanish conquistadors. And so the idea of unsettled ghosts and spirits that might be seeking revenge ties a thread between these past, present, and, and perhaps future scales of trauma. Can you discuss these different levels of haunting that you layer in the novel? Yeah, and I appreciate you kind of just taking a moment to um, put them in these separate categories, right? Um, because there is a lot kind of layered um, on top of um, you know the the themes of the novel. Mm-hmm, absolutely, um, and I think the novel it uh, it kind of um, opens up gradually. You know, there are certainly a lot of hints at the start of the novel uh, to these other hauntings that are occurring. But the first uh, kind of sense of it that we get, and and maybe it's subtle, maybe it's kind of magical. It's this uh, the debt kind of dropping into bed with Hugo in that first mm-hmm. paragraph, mm-hmm. Right? waking up and uh, cuddling with the debt, and you know <laughs> the kinds of things that maybe you know people don't want to be thinking about when they're trying to get some sleep. And um, so it begins there. But even that, I think, um, doesn't really. Um, gain traction early on, what we really see is that Alexei is being haunted. And and I think that's the first manifestation, this kind of acute conflict, uh, something that Hugo has to contend with. But what I try to do in the novel is show uh, how all of these hauntings are interconnected uh, in, uh, in ways that are historical, as you discuss. So if we're tracking uh, onto, let's say, the Christmas girl, right, we might think of Alexei as uh, as the Scrooge, right, who's sitting mm-hmm. in the, uh, the mm-hmm. you know, with all his properties or his money and, right? Ravenous, cr- grasping, crotchety. <laughs> no, that's right. Uh, and so we, I think if, we, if we're if we catching some of those nods early on, there's a certain expectation that the novel 
begins to uh, forecast in, in the way that the hunting is going to proceed. But I think where, where it begins to turn, it's uh, those moments when Hugo gets home. You know, he's away from Alexei, and now he's thinking about his past with Meli. He's kind of reluctant to go there into his past, uh, both with Meli and his childhood uh, and his uh, time in Bolivia and what that all means. So I see, I see him gradually kind of gaining access, uh, or maybe giving himself permission to, uh, maybe permission is the wrong word, but falling into these these hauntings mm. that gradually um, get him further and further away from that acute conflict with Alexei, and more into some of the things that he's been avoiding all his life. You know, I see, I see his interactions with Alexei as, uh, as w one reviewer, I think, described it beautifully. It's uh, two immigrants negotiating their realities with one another. Mm. And that, that, that match is really one of my, my major things that I, I, I love about the novel. And that is the way in which you open up the possibility of very different immigrant experiences in Miami. And Miami gets reduced to when we're thinking about Spanish-speaking immigrants, Cuba only, highly successful, integrated in all the senses of that word, anti-communist, Trump-supporting, but a hunting in Hylia Gardens presents much more textured, diverse, and complicated ways of living, being, being successful, being happy, um, and what it what it means to count as a Spanish-speaking immigrant in, in Miami. And take us through a little bit about your sense of how maybe our, our, our general population in the U.S. reduces that experience and how you wanted to expand it. Yeah, and you know, the, it's the general population. And I think even in Miami, it, it uh, gets reduced. Or, really? Oh, I, that's so interesting. You know, because there's a sense, you know, as somebody who grew up in Miami, uh, sometimes it happens to me, um, especially because I live up north. Sometimes I'll reflect back on the city or I'll visit and I expect a very particular kind of Miami. You know, the, the Miami from my high school days or my early college days, right? And the city really has expanded and changed uh, so much uh, within the last decade. Uh, it's this rising global city, this major, it's becoming a really major regional financial center for Latin America, much more than uh, in previous years. And what we're seeing in Miami is this influx of folks from all over the world for Art Basel, for you name it, right? Um, and, um, and I think that idea of Miami kind of... Uh, being separated in, into just maybe a few immigrant groups, some that dominate and some that don't, um, has become a, a lot more complicated uh, recently. Um, and especially with uh, second and uh, third generation of uh, Cuban Americans and, and other Latinx folks uh, living in Miami. So with a novel, what I wanted to do was uh, imagine or kind of uh, give shape to a Miami that that is a bit uh, closer to... Uh, some of the really kind of fantastic cultural uh, negotiations and uh, that are occurring right now in Miami. And it was for that reason that I uh, chose the protagonist. I, I wanted him to be non-Cuban. Mm -hmm. And I knew that early on. And uh, I wanted him to be Latinx, but non-Cuban. And kind of looking at this, what would be the dominant Cuban-American community, but from uh, a position of somebody that's used to looking at it from the outside, right? As a way to kind of give vision to parts of the city that maybe sometimes folks uh, don't immediately go to. 
uh, when they're thinking about it, even those who live in Miami. Yeah, that's, well, it's so fascinating to me the way in which Hugo and then Alexi sort of become these kind of foils for one another, but also begin to open up in each other this kind of d different ways of, of being and belonging that don't fall into those understandable categories. The, one of the things I love about this book is it's hilarious. It's, <laughs> it's filled with incredible black comedy about everything, you know, everything from, you know, traffic to death to the <laughs> devil. To, and I, I, I'm just wondering how you work with comedy in your fiction when it's brushing up against real things, real historical and present terror and trauma. With, uh, with this novel in particular, it was uh, really important to bring some humor in. And I think, you know, just kind of putting myself inside of Hugo's head for a moment, you know, uh, he's somebody who, um, you know, everything is kind of uh, contained for him. He's living this very claustrophobic life. And when it comes to agency, there are few real choices he can make because of the sorts of debts that he has, right? But I'm really interested in these kind of adjacent spaces um, where um, where you can find that agency or find that power, right? And I think humor is one of them. Uh, opportunities. So even if uh, you're in a situation that's quite bleak, um, right? One adjacent space is, you know, you can, you can crack a joke about it, right? Or mm -hmm. laugh about it. And I think, um, and there are other categories like that, like uh, like dreams, right? Uh, the ability, even if you're contained in a space, to be able to dream and and uh, imagine your way out or dream your way out, you know. Um, so part of part of the humor is kind of a survival mechanism, the way I picture it uh, for Hugo. But it's also coming from the narrator, right? And it was, um, you know, as um, as the as the narrative un uh, unfolds, right? Because it touches on so many difficult topics, it felt really important uh, to uh, to bring in some humor as well, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, and to those moments where it kind of affirms the life of the characters in the novel, right? And uh, and and shows that it's not just people who are damned and going through the motions, but rather uh, people who find themselves in these beautiful life-affirming moments while simultaneously <laughs> living, you know, in these bleak circumstances. Yeah, yeah. One of the ways that you convey comedy in the novel is through Spanish and and often profanities in Spanish. <laughs> you, you run the full gambit including some that I didn't know, uh, which was really fun. And it, it, there's a connected thing with your use of Spanish and its untranslated status in the novel. It works in context for sure, but it works differently if you know in Spanish that basura incendida is, you know, trash fire. Or, <laughs> um, and it's going to be funnier and more specific. So can you talk about the, the, the richness of having that double audience and, and double meaning happening and how you uh, like to play with also the richness of profanity? Oh, it's, it's really fun, you know, because I guess uh, I set out uh, writing the novel with a kind of implied audience uh, and the implied audience being, I guess, folks in Miami, right, who are really intimate with the city and know it really well. And I, I, I think I began there uh, in early drafts and then, of course, uh, began to think about uh, larger audiences in, in revision, right? Um, and it's, it's fascinating, um, right? The, the 
it, particularly with some of the Spanish, there are clear moments when somebody who doesn't speak Spanish, right, uh, might miss something uh, of, of the, of the uh, you know, uh, the nuance maybe of a particular phrase, right? Um, while, while, as you said, somebody who knows it would catch it right, right away, right? And that itself was, was fascinating, right? You know, um, I tried not, I tried not to overdetermine some of it and try to, what is it, cultivate the experience for, for mm. various readers. And what I mm. chose to do uh, later in, in revision stages was uh, to kind of lean into this, this beautiful uh, linguistic, you know, complication, right, that comes with folks who are from Miami, who, mm. who think in Spanish, but speak in English and throw in some Spanish, right, uh, uh, as a way of, um, what is it, staging some of that on the page, right? And seeing what these words and what these phrases uh, alongside one another can, can elicit or produce. But there, there, uh, there are often a lot of like fun opportunities with that. And I, and I guess just to um, dig into it a bit further, right? It, it, it's, an, it's a place too where um, the, this idea of having access or being able to enter mm-hmm. into a community or enter, mm-hmm. enter into the system, right? There are ways in which Miami... Of course, closes some people out based on wealth or based on where you live or uh, or, th- or the way you appear. But I think uh, it occurs sometimes at the level of the language to uh, without folks fully realizing it. So it was fun fun to stage that and and allow that tension to exist there. Yeah, the, and and it it really I, I love the way that you talk about the the complications and and beauty of the complexity of having Spanish just operating both in the way people are thinking and the way that they're speaking. And you and you really get a sense of that in the in Hugo and the other characters. I want to talk a a little bit about the 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 way that this novel is obsessed with different kinds of debt and indebtedness. And Hugo's debt that rises from the dead when when Melly dies is such an indictment of capitalism and its use of debt to keep people immobilized and keep them from ever climbing out from underneath these kind of weighty debts that just grow and grow because of interest. And so that becomes in a way tied. There's a thread that gets tied to that ghost of the past and colonialism and the way that debts were and indebtedness was accrued during that period. So could you talk a little bit about the connection between the two and how you wanted to think about that kind of terrible indebtedness that so many Americans and specifically immigrant Americans have on their shoulders? You know, when I when I started writing the novel, I think my, my approach uh, toward debt was very two-dimensional. You know, it was, uh, I was really thinking about credit cards, student loans, you know, and the fun of this novel. You, you know, of course, something felt felt off, uh, incomplete and in approaching those, the- those, those topics. And the fun of the novel was actually, as you suggested, right, digging a lot deeper into these uh, topics, right? Um, and then from my position right now with a novel out in the world, um, you know, debt fundamentally, I, I see it as um, this kind of primordial, you know, obligation, responsibility that we have to one another in a society, right? Um, the idea that we can run into each other on, on the street, run into a stranger somewhere, right? In a community, in a society, right? And um, 
for there to be peace, right? To say hello, to walk by, right? For there not to be violence that occurs, right? Um, you know, this 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 debt that we have to one another, uh, even without knowing one another, to maintain a certain uh, peace, uh, a society, and then so so I from my position, I begin I begin there and and you know just kind of thinking about the ways in which uh, debts kind of get mapped on or sutured on to capitalism to to finance you know to the ways in which uh, these sorts of obligations that we have to one another which are beautiful right mm-hmm. also now can be compounded with interest or it can be huh. levied by the you know judicial bodies and and all of a sudden you know um, we've got these systems that uh, that are i think um, complicating in some cases polluting what 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 it is that really holds us together as a people so so in the novel the way that i wanted to explore that um it had and and that's what took me to bolivia it's um that uh, potosi the silver right the way that it uh it, it funded in large part the industrial revolution you know the way that uh you know casually i was just in key west in a uh, uh treasure uh, treasure seeker museum right and there was silver oh, everywhere yeah. we'll <laughs> oh wow that's so interesting it was fascinating and um and so the, yeah so the way that uh through these colonial efforts right um uh essentially europe can dig this massive hole uh in uh, in south america uh, can uh, accrue this incredible violence right and then off the heels of that um right um develop uh, industry and and commerce and capitalism uh, accelerated um i thought that was fascinating um uh-huh. something that i i hadn't seen a lot of people uh, writing about um so i wanted to dig into that um and and just make uh apparent make present um the ways in which those histories live in our in our 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 present hmm. the uh, one of the things that you're doing with that past is you're bringing it, drawing it into the present and making it something that we can feel. And I think the way that you're describing the, our, you know, our, our indebtedness to each other then gets this other, this other layer of un, unaccounted for uh, indebtedness to each other. And, and Hugo begins, I think, to, to sort of feel that. It's not just that he remembers it, he feels it. And this is a novel in which I think sometimes the the genre elements of it, feeling that there's an ill spirit and feeling like you're being haunted, has to do with kind of feeling these indebtedness to others. And I wonder if that affect, that feeling those things, has something to do with how you play with the genre of spirits and exorcisms, etc. Yeah, thank you. The uh, the genres, um, I guess, the way that I'm accessing them, uh, it's often in conversation with with other writers, right, who happen to work within particular genres. And with this novel in particular, I think one of the comments that I, that I hear sometimes from readers is that you know it's it's a page turner, right? Uh, it's got like uh, I think of it as a a narrative that has like this engine, uh, um, in which you know you've there's this need to flip the page and get to the next one and get to the next one. And 
there's a desire to arrive at the end and find out what happens, you know, that kind of thing. And I think that sometimes is um, part of what people are thinking about when they're thinking about genre. Uh, not always, but I think it's sometimes uh, associated with it. But it's also something that, it, especially in the context of that and in the novel, something that I'm cautious about as well, something that I'm sometimes skeptical about. You know, if I find myself, you know, as an example, going to the mailbox and opening up uh, a catalog uh, from like a retailer or something and, and flipping through it and being like, I want to buy all of that. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, or, or I don't know, these, these ways in which, um, you know, you could find yourself valuing a, a certain way of being in the world in, in which, uh, you know, you're, um, there are things that you want and things that you need to possess, right. Or, or own. Um, and I think that sometimes genre can work that way in the way that the narrative functions. So I, so I have a complicated uh, relationship with um, with these kind of page turner models or, the, or these narratives that function this way. So part of the challenge with a novel was, and in subverting that a little bit, was figuring out, uh, okay, you know, there, there, are certain thing, there are certain ways in which this is going to absolutely latch onto these traditional plots and, and genre and that kind of thing. But, but there need to be ways that the novel turns away from it as well. You know, there need to be ways in which, you know, at the moment that, uh, you know, you're going to finally possess the object of desire or something like that, <laughs> you know, things, things kind of flip and it, and it wasn't what was expected. Um, yeah. The novel is, is, uh, suspicious of its own genres. Yeah. I, and I love, I love it put that way. And that, and, and that I think imbues it with that page turning quality. Because it's like, well, I want to, I want to figure out what the novel thinks of itself. Is it serious about this thing? Is it serious about this other thing? And, and for me, it turns out it, it, it's serious about most of them. Um, but it, it, it still wants to complicate them and say, yes, but, and that, and that I think does a lot of good work for how the, the genres exist in the book. Um, before I let you go, I'd love to know a little bit about what you've been reading recently and, and whether you have some things you'd like to recommend for our listeners. So on, on my way back from Paris, um, I checked, I, um, I opened up my, uh, my friend Alejandro Nodadze, uh, his book, it's a thriller, it's called Blood in the Cut. Uh, he's a fellow Nebraskan, Cuban American we met in. Nebraska. <laughs> so there are two of you. That's yeah, there are two. <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, he he's uh, debuting now. Uh, it's in April, I believe. Uh, so uh, I tore through a hundred pages, and then uh, came here uh, this week to through college for work, and I'm getting ready this weekend to spend some more time with it. But it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of it kind of opens up. Uh, it's got like a great. It's got a, a grapes of wrath feel. Uh, oh, uh, with a, with a protagonist kind of coming uh, coming back to the family after having spent some time in prison, right? And then it kind of quickly maybe it was because I'd just seen I'd just been on the the plane and I'd just seen the uh, the Gucci movie, uh, <laughs> House of Gucci, right? It's got it's got that vibe, right? Uh, with the Lady Gaga character uh, who's kind of mm. you know, intent and kind of revamping things and getting creative. Um, so it, oh, it sounds uh, outrageously good. Yeah, it, it, it's it's. Uh, it was hard to walk away from it, uh, so I'm looking forward to getting back to it. the The last great book I read it was uh, uh, Claire Jimenez's uh, "What Happened to Ruthie Ramirez." Mm. Uh, she's uh, such a gifted storyteller, awesome voice. I had the pleasure of reading alongside her at uh, the Miami Book Fair 
recent oh, and that's be awesome. oh yeah yeah it was fantastic so that that's for now i'm i'm, I'm planning in the next uh, week or so i'll be reading uh a little bit about kind of uh, Miami rising sea levels, various articles and books on that. But that's right. That is a, that gives us a hint of where your next novel's going, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> well, we'll have that to look forward to. And I love the the Claire Jimenez novel, and I can't wait for Blood in the Cut. But everyone should run out to their local indie bookstore and get A Haunting in Hylia Gardens by Raul Palma. You will not be disappointed. And it was certainly such a pleasure uh, to get to talk to you, Raul. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right, likewise. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. No, your questions are incredible. Well, that's all from me for now. My thanks to the fabulous Raul Palma for coming on the show to talk about his blockbuster debut novel, A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens. You can find links to purchase A Haunting in Hialeah Gardens and all of Raul's recommended books at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all of our previous episodes, links to buy a podcast t-shirt, and ways to get in contact. As you listen, take a moment to rate the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.